Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hi, everybody. Welcome to tonight's session, The Power of Good is Good Enough, which is part of the LSE Festival, People and Place. Um, I usually start by saying it's an honour and privilege to be in the LSE in a building like the Marshall Building, where I like to find nooks and crannies to work. But I'm going to say, I'm also looking at you, and you look like a pretty perfect audience. So I'm wondering how many perfectionists we have, given the topic that we're going to discuss tonight. So we might do a reveal later when we get to know each other a bit more. Um, but first, I want to start by introducing my panel. So uh, Tom Curran, who has recently written the book The Perfection Trap. It's available in all good booksellers. Please do pick it up. It's absolutely fantastic. He's also my colleague and associate professor um, in the Psychological and Behavioural Science Department here at the LSE. Um, Next to Tom is Adrian Herbert, who is a leading wellness professional and also host of the podcast. I'm sure you've heard of the Power Hour podcast. Absolutely fantastic. And last but not least, another colleague of mine here at the LSE, Rachel O'Neill, assistant professor in the Department of Media and Comms a feminist and media cultural studies scholar specialising in gender and sexuality and author of Seduction, Men, Masculinity and Mediated Intimacy. So you have two books and a podcast to look into as soon as the session is over. But before we lose you to books and podcasts, I'm going to give my um, colleague Tom just about five minutes to set the scene for what we're going to discuss tonight. So over to you, Tom. Thank you very much, Grace. And thank you, everyone, for coming to see us speak this evening. It's, uh, it's a real privilege. Um, that's right, I uh, am going to give a brief overview of uh, the, what we're gonna be discussing today. Um, and I wanna start really by providing a, I guess, big picture uh, definition of this idea of what, what I'm talking about when I'm talking about good enough. And really my my book and this whole session is predicated on the opposite of good enough, which is a striving and an excessive need for perfection. Something that uh, a lot of us I'm sure can relate to, certainly I can relate to uh, myself. And really there's there's two opposites here. We have a striving of perfection on the one hand, something that's inherently obtainable and something that's much healthier, the striving for uh, good enough or uh, or to be able to accept and appreciate when we've done uh, a good enough job. So that's really what we're gonna talk about this evening. And I wanna start really by providing some background. Uh, My work as a psychologist has really been focused now for the last decade on trying to understand why it is that people in modern society are becoming more and more perfectionistic. That's to say we're putting pl- place in more demands on ourselves, self-imposed pressures um, that are creating a lot of uh, struggles, difficulties, um, and ultimately leading us to feel uh, more, a little bit miserable, not quite as happy or uh, as satisfied with our accomplishments. And this is uh, something that I've been studying for many, many years now. And a lot of people, when, they, when I tell them, that, you know, I study perfectionism and this kind of excessive need to excel, a lot of people um, come to me and, and say, well, you know, don't we need perfection? Don't we need a little bit of perfectionism to succeed? Isn't this something um, that, yes, has these issues that come with it, but also carries us forward, makes us successful, holds us up uh, in the world? 
And I think the reason why I'm so keen in this book, and perhaps we'll talk about this today, to kind of push through that, what I believe is a myth, is because this approach to understanding perfectionism comes from the wrong starting point. Perfectionism isn't a uh, striving for high standards. It isn't a characteristic that pushes us towards excellence. At root, and this is really crucial, Perfectionism is a form of deficit thinking, a form of thinking that I'm not perfect enough and that I have to therefore conceal my flaws, my shortcomings, okay, the things that are fallible about me, my exhaustible existence from the world around me. And so all of that striving, all of those high standards are essentially a cover, a mask of hyper-functioning, of maximization that conceals a more insecure, uh, insecure uh, reality that lives underneath. So that's a starting point for perfectionism. And over years, we've done mu a lot of research trying to unpack this form of deficit thinking that we understand as perfectionism, and it comes out in three different ways. So it comes out as an excessive desire and need to be perfect. This is called self-oriented perfectionism. I need to be perfect and nothing but perfect, and I'm harshly critical of myself when I haven't reached that high benchmark. But we also know, crucially, that perfectionism isn't just about a personal factor or what comes from within. It also comes from the outside world. This is called socially prescribed perfectionism. And it's the belief that perfectionists carry around with them that says, everyone else in my social environment expects me to be perfect. They're watching me, they're judging me, and when they slip up, they're gonna let me know. And the third element of perfectionism is other-oriented perfectionism. That's perfectionism that's turned outwards onto others. So I have high standards for myself, and I'm going to expect those high standards of other people too. So I'm going to turn that perfectionism on out, outwards onto other people and expect them to be perfect and judge them harshly when they haven't been perfect. Now, my research rose to prominence, and this is why I wrote the book, on the back of a really interesting finding, a uh, study that I conducted in 2017, published it in 2019, which showed that all three of these dimensions of perfectionism are rising among young people but what's most frightening, and something I'm sure we'll talk about this evening, is that it's the social element of perfectionism. That sense that everything and all around me, the people and my environment, expect me to be perfect. That's exploding in recent years, and we're seeing an, that, that uh, trend now is on an exponential curve. It's risen about 40% since the late 1980s, and anyone who's followed COVID data will know that once a trend goes exponential, it grows way faster than we expect. And so really that's the basis and background for today's talk, because I think in a world that expects perfection, that radiates perfection, as the subtitle of my book says, a much healthier way for us all to strive where we can find contentment and still be able to strive for high goals is in this idea of good enough. So I'll leave it there. Can I ask you one very short follow-up question? So you've written a book on perfectionist trap. Are you a perfectionist? Is research research in this particular case? Absolutely. 110%. Yeah, I'm, 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 a t I'm a quintessential perfectionist. I worry about everything. And I, it took three years to write this book. It took two years longer than I, uh, the original contract. <laughs> um, at the end of the process, my editor, <laughs> I think, was ready, <laughs> ready to, uh, well, I don't know. She was uh, in a, in a, She's just had to, she basically emailed me and said, I've got to take this book off you. <laughs> because we're not going to submit it otherwise, because I was iterating and changing right to the final hour. So yes, research is me, me searching this uh, in this particular case, absolutely. Fantastic. 
Now, Adrian, welcome to the LSE. And one of the things the LSE is known for is spirited debate. So I'm wondering if you have any reactions to what Tom has said. And I would really welcome some disagreement if you have, if, if you have some. Wow. Well, I'm not sure about disagreement, but I do feel incredibly nervous to be candid and honest as a recovering perfectionist. Um, we've spoken before, so you know how I feel. And yeah, I felt incredibly nervous even hearing you describe it. I was like, oh, that's me. And I think I would never have used the word perfectionist or perfectionism to describe myself. Other people who know me might do that. And I think the, the reason that they might do that is because I think I've always grown up with a sense of focusing on achievement and achievement has defined me. It's been so much a part of my life for so long um, for myself and my siblings. And people would always say that. They'd say, wow, you've achieved so much. Wow, you're such a high achiever. And it was only in later life, um, in my mid-30s, that I started to understand that okay, running another marathon, writing another book, starting another project, doing the next thing, making it a little bit better and iterating and thinking that, well, this is actually just what high performance is. This is what, you know, achievement helps us to succeed. It helps us to be better. It was only when I started to understand why. Why do you have this obsession almost with achievement? You achieve one thing, you achieve the next thing. It was really, um, it's quite... You know, it's quite hard to learn things about yourself that aren't great. And I think what I learned was that a few things. Number one was that my um, obsession with achievement came from a real place, as you said, of lacking and feeling that oh, as I was growing up, when you achieve things, people notice you, people congratulate you, people say, well done. And if you don't get those things from the people, maybe caregivers, parents, people who you expect to get those things from, you will try and get them from other people, peers, teachers, people at school, people on social media, other people will tell you, wow, well done. And so I think for me and my siblings, we grew up with um, a single mother in a low-income household, and she was incredibly busy. She did, definitely did her best, but it was challenging for her. And she was working, and she was busy, and it was kind of like, yeah, you guys go and do your own thing, because we were all very extroverted. You know, she really had her hands full. And... Um, Honestly, I'm the, I'm the shy, lowest achiever out of all of my siblings. And um, we were just a lot. And I think she was kind of like, oh, you guys can take care of yourselves. So even those small things, learning that actually when you go, look, look at me, look at me, and someone goes, yeah, I'm busy, you, you really crave that someone saying to you, well done, and giving you that gold sticker. So woe is me. That then drove me on, I suppose, to achieve lots of things. And I think the way I'm learning to manage this now in a healthy way is that, yes, I want to achieve things and I want to be, quote unquote, have success. And if I set a goal or a project for myself, I want to, you know, I want to fulfill that. Um, but I think I'm trying to notice the effort, notice the process, notice the why. Why am I interested in doing this again? Why am I interested in doing this in the first place? Um, and I'm trying to manage it that way. One more thing I wrote down is that when you talked about the reasons, or I think you listed out something about people expect me to be a perfectionist. And it's interesting when you said that, because I felt my own experience wasn't that I thought people expect me to be in first place or they expect me to, to write this book or run this marathon. It was more, again, going back to how I grew up, it was that I knew that people needed me to do things. So whether that was my siblings, whether that was my mother, whether that later on became my children or my partner, it became a thing that I'm very competent and very capable. And when you are those things, others around you get used to you being competent and capable. They get used to you planning things and taking care of things and thinking about a, a plan B so they don't have to. So I think it was also that. It wasn't so much that I thought, oh, everyone expects me to be get it right. 
I thought, actually, everyone needs me to get it right. I need to catch the ball or, or you know, there's no safety net. So it's very complex. And I think for anyone else who feels that kind of a bit of shame, maybe, or slightly cringes and thinks, oh, gosh, why am I so, you know, obsessed with achievement? Like, you're almost like berating yourself, thinking that I shouldn't be so self-obsessed and shouldn't be so hard on myself. It might not, yeah, stem from the root of just trying to be the best. There's lots and lots of complex, nuanced reasons that you might behave that way. Yeah, absolutely. Rachel, a reaction to what Adrian and Tom have said. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I want to, of course, congratulate Tom for this book. I think it's really fantastic that this is out in the world and that these ideas are being engaged with. And one could even say, in some respect, with our title tonight, revivified, because the idea of good enough, of course, has a long history with the ideas in particular of Winnicott, which is why I'm very glad that you mentioned mothers and mothering. I think this is, this is something I'd like to pick up on. So Winnicott's idea of the good enough mother, which was something that was really transformative in many ways in the 1950s when it was elaborated and achieved quite a wide popular reception, in fact, was something of a bomb to mothers of the day who were holding themselves up to really impossible standards and, as Adrian has indicated also, had impossible standards placed upon them. And Winnicott's idea of the good enough mother isn't simply that perfect mothering or perfect parenting isn't possible, it's also that it's not desirable. And it's not desirable for either the mother or for the child because the child needs to learn about how to handle and deal with frustration and disappointment and discontent precisely because the world will present these things to us. The world is imperfect. It will let us down and it will frustrate us in many ways. And so these are lessons that the good enough mother can help her child to, to learn. And yet, this isn't to say, either in Winnicott's own thinking or certainly in my own, that accepting good enough for ourselves individually, so embracing this, means reconciling ourselves evermore to frustration and to disappointment. And to the contrary, I would argue that we should absolutely embrace this idea of good enough precisely to the extent that and because it may enable us to redirect our energies elsewhere and particularly to the wider social, economic and political context. Of course, we are the London School of Economics <laughs> and Social Sciences. Social Sciences is very important there. So in my view, thinking about this in a wider perspective, it's not good enough that food banks have been institutionalized in the UK over the last 15 years or so, going from being really almost unheard of in 20 to 2008 at the onset of the financial crisis to being somewhere in the region of 3,000 today. That's, a, that's exponential, as, as Tom has suggested in a, a different manner. It's not acceptable, it's not good enough that the NHS is currently being decimated by wave after wave of market reforms that seem intent not on partial private pri privatization, but full privatization. It's not good enough that over the last several months we have seen many different kinds of workers. We have seen teachers and doctors and, yes, academics out on strike in the face of stagnating wages, uh, difficulties in terms of our working conditions, and also a cost of living crisis that many are, are feeling the sharp effect of. So many of those, I would say, who are currently and very recently departed from government demonstrate 
rather little regard for whether their own performances, which are supposedly in the public interest, have been good enough. And so I would say absolutely yes, let us embrace this idea of good enough in the context of our own lives as individuals to stop striving for perfection so that we might free ourselves up for other pursuits, namely to try and shift and change and challenge the status quo. And that's something that I think that we can and should be doing at the ballot box, in the streets and on the picket lines. Amazing, thank you. And I should say, oh, I'll ask you first, are you a perfectionist? I, mm, I'm not sure. <laughs> Possibly. I'm not sure, I'm not sure. So Still uh, thinking about it. As somebody who's definitely not a perfectionist, I've noticed I haven't been a perfect chair. I do want to give a belated welcome to our online audience <laughs> and to let them know I'm very much, very much interested in what you have to say tonight. And in fact, one of my favorite colleagues, Nikita, is in the front row who will be managing your questions. So online people, please do forgive me. I was just, I was so excited to hear from the panel. I didn't give you a proper welcome. So welcome to the virtual LSA. Um, so getting back, right back into the conversation, when all of three of you were speaking, it sounded to me like you were suggesting that there is too much, there's too far a line that you cross from good to perfection. So that feels quite theoretical for me. So how would I know as somebody who is training for a marathon? I know you're going to do a marathon quite, quite soon. Just, just, just London just, in April. Congratulations. <laughs> if you're training for a marathon, studying for an exam, writing a book, you said you went over by a couple of years. How do we know when we're <laughs> so at the too marathon. much line? <laughs> I, I think, can I, I'll ask this question, but I want to draw in what's been discussed because I think it's so, so important. Two things that have been discussed so far, and, and this is something that's sometimes missed when we talk about these issues around perfection and perfectionism, is that we think it operates in a vacuum, that's to say within individuals, and it's an individual affliction. And that's not the case. Um, perfectionism can only ever be a social characteristic that is impacted by the way in which we interact with other people. And as we talked about, that kind of... Uh, need for approval and validation is something that is kind of almost a prop for, for the self-esteem of the perfectionist because they don't feel enough, because they don't feel perfect enough. And again, uh, Rachel has talked about the more structural societal um, forces that are acting on us right now, and that's absolutely the case. I finished the book in the final chapter to try to unpick the social forces that are producing these intense pressures for the very reason that so much self-help these days focuses on the individual, about what we can do in ourselves to change ourselves from the inside out. But what if actually the solution to these pressures is best worked on from the outside in? What would we do? And how could we create a society in which perfectionism and the need to be perfect would lose most of its power? And so I just wanted to say these were immensely important contributions. Now, going back to... Um, your point, Grace, about how do we know when good enough is good enough? Well, here's the thing. We live in a society, in a culture, an economy, where, where growth is everything. Growth is put on a gilded pedestal above all other considerations, including our human needs of connection, of um, autonomy, of a sense of purpose. And I think that really is why we feel like this, because constantly there's a, a sense and a pressure in people that we've got to do more that there's always something else to chase. There's another product to buy. There's another hour to work. Uh, and there's, and, and there's, other, there's another sacrifice to make on the path to where. We don't really know. The destination is not clear. All that matters 
All that's important is that we're moving forward, that we're growing. And so for the perfectionist and for people in the audience, I'm sure you can relate, um, success feels a bit like a bottomless pit. It's a bit like chasing the horizon. The closer we get, the further it goes from our reach. And that's very much what it feels like to live in today's society. And I, I think my book is trying to push back on that really strong, intense focus on growth, 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 and to actually realize something worth valuing in ourselves. And that's to say that our achievements right now in the here and now are good enough. And we can keep striving and we can keep wanting to do more. We can have goals and we can have aspirations, but we can't let this focus on growth overtake our lives because what that does is it teaches us that in the moment we're not enough. And I think for, it's so, so important for us to realize that actually we are enough right now. Just existing, being here means we're enough. And for me, that's, 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 a, that's that kind of, I know it's very nebulous, but, but that, that very philosophy has allowed me to let things go let my book get sent off <laughs> and, and allow me to kind of let life happen rather than me constantly having to happen in life all the time. And that's been very therapeutic for me. Can I add something, Tom, about that? Yeah. So I was thinking about, yeah, tools and things as I, as I do. I've got quite a practical brain. And actually, as you were talking then about growth being the goal and then goal, even the words goal setting, I'm someone who loves goal setting no surprise. And I actually have run goal setting workshops in the past. And I actually think that this can be a bit of an antidote to that growth, 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 growth. Because if you set a goal, the first thing I say to people is make it specific. So just saying, I would like to earn more money. How much more? 10%? Double? 10 times more? Like how much more? Because if you set a number, you have a benchmark and you do have a finish line. Or for example, when you know you have to be able to measure what are the parameters we're measuring this success, if you want to measure success, if you want to have a goal. And that I do think has been helpful. I think a lot of people find that helpful. They can then tick that off and have a moment of recognition for themselves to say, you worked hard for this and you did it. Or you didn't. And that's also uh, it's jumped into my mind when you said that and you brought up the marathon. I had a time in, that I wanted to get this year in the London Marathon, like everybody does. They say they don't, but they do really. So everyone says, what time? They go, I'm not bothered, but they are. So I had a time which I wanted to get, and I thought, okay, I'm going to train really hard for this. I'm going to train through the winter, through the cold, through the snow, through the, you know how bad the winter was this year. And my husband, who's in the audience, also had to do the training with me in the cold and listen to me complain about the cold. So it got to the race, and we were also, should probably add, most importantly, above this time goal, we were running to raise money for a charity, a Hackney-based charity that does incredible work called The Outrunners, and the charity supports young people and encourages them to get into physical activity and into sport, and it provides mentorship, so many things. So we were raising money for that charity. So I had two goals. One was, I want to get this time because if I'm going to train so hard. Second was, we're going to raise awareness, we're going to raise money, we're going to talk about it on social media, and we're going to support the outrunners. And even by running the race as a person of colour and showing those other pe young people of colour within the organisation, look at what you can do. If I can do it, you can do it. So I had these things, and I think you know where this story's going to go. Mile 20... I'm on target for this time. I'm thinking this is all going so well, but it's so hard. And anyone who's ever done a marathon will know that the last six miles is like a completely different race. So I didn't get the time. I was seven minutes um, over the target that I wanted. And I was very disappointed. And I didn't want to lie and be like, oh, I don't care. I did care. I got over it, but I did care. I thought, you know, I worked so hard for months. I worked so hard for months. I really did put in the effort, the miles, all of those things I talk about. I did those things and I still didn't reach the goal. So I think to 
summarize because it's taking the hogging the mic summarize one is that if you set yourself a specific goal that can i think help with this like more 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 and then if you do reach it recognize it and celebrate that and if you don't it's okay like we don't like to say to people now do we that you failed or we've all got you know we've all got the same eight place trophies and all of that actually no i didn't get it like i was disappointed i'm a big girl and i got over it and it wasn't the end of the world life carries on and you didn't achieve your goal and it's quite humbling. You're just like, okay, the most important thing was we raised awareness and money for the charity. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Tom, Tom said something, Rachel, that got me thinking, and I, I spoke briefly um, with Tom about this before, so I'll ask the question to you. So when we think about perfectionism, we normally think about the dominant social norms which defines perfectionism. But of course, there's a rise of social media influencers. And one who comes to my mind is Jordan Peterson, who's written these 12 rules for life, for example, and has a huge following who aim to go with his rules for life, which is problematic for society. So some of the things that I care about, being the director of the Inclusion Initiative, are very much in odds with what he has to say mm. to people. Mm. So I'm wondering about the drive for perfectionism and how it's actually bringing about a polarisation in society. Mm. And I think the second part of that question is, if it is bringing about a polarisation in society and some other negative things that we haven't spoken about yet, but you can imagine... If I'm on Instagram all day, there's lots of things that, that can kind of define my perfectionism for me. Should we be doing more to govern social media and more to govern influencers and the messages that they put out? Or is that being too paternal? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a very big question. Fantastic question. Um, and I just want to echo and, and, and agree with Tom in, in saying you know, the importance of, of, of approaching the problem from the outside yep. in, which I think, you know, you're, you're picking up on here. And also recognizing that sometimes taking what might appear to be the most direct route is not necessarily the best route. Sometimes we need to go the long way around to address a particular problem. In relation to uh, social media, I think we absolutely are beyond the point whereby we need much, much stronger regulation. And that needs to be something that is transnational these companies are operating across borders, and it is something that needs to be material. There need to be material costs that companies have to actually um, meet if they are um, infracting on regulation or they're seen not to uh, comply, essentially. So I think we do have a need, absolutely, for uh, greater regulation. And in relation to the question of, of polarization, I think this is, this is obviously something that we're seeing in a whole host of different uh, manners and different ways that it's manifesting and with something like Jordan Peterson and social media again we need to recognize that social media platforms are extensions of the advertising industry in many ways they are designed in part to breed a certain kind of discontent or foment a certain kind of discontent, discontent that can then supposedly be remedied by some kind of market redress a product that you can buy a service that you can purchase and so we need to be realistic in thinking about what is the purpose of those platforms. We call them social media platforms. Many of them are very anti-social. And so I think we should also be thinking not only about regulation, but thinking about building infrastructure of a, of a kind of social media, a true kind of social media that is actually in the public interest, in the public good, and in the public hands. That's fantastic. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories, or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out.
Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Adrian, Tom, do you want to add anything to that? Um, I just completely agree. Uh, social media, you know, it, used, it used to be, didn't it? I mean, I, I'm old enough to have used Facebook when it was originally out. And for those like me will know that it was originally a, a platform that kind of greased the wheels of offline relationships. You had a college campus and you shared, I mean, there was a thing called poking. Nobody really knew what that was, but you could do it. Uh, there was a wall where you could write some stuff, but nobody really used that either. The only thing that most people used it for was really to share pictures of each other and kind of engage in a bit of lighthearted banter about the night before or where they're going to go at the next weekend or whatever it was. It kind of social media platform in the truest sense. But as Rachel said, it's, it's, it's completely morphed now into something entirely different. And it goes back to this, uh, for me anyway, this obsession with growth. Our economy needs to grow and so do social media companies. So they had to transform themselves into businesses that turn profits mm. continually. Mm. Uh, and the way that they did that was to turn themselves into advertising devices, which is fine. But unfortunately, what that means is that although analog advertising had a very difficult impact on young people, particularly women, uh, in the past, social media has taken analog advertising and essentially put it on a platform we've never seen before, creating all sorts of discontent about how we look and our current life circumstances into which targeted ads thrive. And not only that, actually, we're the content creators as well, yeah. just to add an extra piece to it, uh, that are creating the hall of mirrors of discontent that then is, um, is remedied, as, as Rachel uh, said, by uh, material products. So, you know, perfectionism is really ba baked in. It's built in to modern society um, because perfectionists are very good consumers and they're exceptionally good workers. So essentially perfectionism is really evidence, widespread perfectionism is evidence that the system is working and it's working really, really well. But who's it working for is the question. It's not working exceptionally well for us, but it is working well for people that make a lot of money from our discontent. So we'll stick on the topic of productivity, I think, but change slightly. And Adrian, I'm going to come to you. So. When we were talking, there's kind of an innuendo that people who are perfectionists really suffer in terms of productivity. So I'd like to get your perspective on that. And then the second question that I would like to put out there is, if we are aiming for good enough, there might be some type of classes of workers, artists, creators, for example, who really do aim for perfect before they put something out into the world. Tom, I'll put you in one of those, in one of those categories, that maybe if we got it too early, it wouldn't be as good. So just, mm -hmm. just, just kind of for argument's sake. So do we risk losing genius if we start telling people that we don't want perfectionism? Wow, that is an incredible question. I think it's a very, yeah, it's a tightrope walk, isn't it? And I think I, so the first part around productivity, I think that productivity, again, seems to be quite a polarizing <laughs> word. Some people are like, you know, productivity is important because it's about efficiency. It's about, you know, using time well and having more, essentially reclaiming more of our time so that we don't have to spend every minute working. Other people think productivity is, you know, the hustle culture and do more and, um, you know, just, yeah, endless. I think that the, the, the connection between productivity and perfectionism and the way I've understood it as well from our conversations, Tom, is that it's kind of when it becomes detrimental to your own well-being, to your own mental health, to your own sanity. So, for example, you might stay up all through the night or you might work. I know a creator that I interviewed on my podcast who's yeah, an incredible pioneer in filmmaking, and he actually shared the story of how he would work 
on you know these projects and screens for so long and he'd be so immersed in it that he wouldn't even break to go to the toilet, he wouldn't break to eat, he wouldn't break to sleep, and it led him to really ill health. So of course those instances happen. I think for the majority of people it doesn't go to that extreme, but as you rightly said, I think a lot of people, myself included in the past, have felt this fear of when people say, oh, be self-compassionate, you know, good enough's good enough, you don't have to go the extra mile, you don't have to do the extra. You think, well, actually, if I didn't, I would be complacent or I would be lazy or I wouldn't achieve as much. And again, it comes back to that feeling of lacking because in lots of instances in my life, in lots of the work that I do, in lots of the rooms that I'm in, often I'm the only woman and the only woman of colour. And there's probably things ingrained in there which are social things and people's biases. And so I feel as though I have to prove before I've even opened my mouth, before I've shared my keynote, before I've opened the book, because they might not expect me to be there, for one. They might not expect me to have the skills or the qualifications or the knowledge. I've seen it many, many times. People are surprised. And they've even told me that before. Oh, I was surprised. You're the speaker or you're the author. And it's, it's very, um, yeah, again, nuanced. There's lots of reasons that, that can make us feel the way we do. But it's really good to investigate them, to challenge them, to understand them so that you don't yeah, feel as though you have to do two extra years of work. Did you edit to say to you in the end, Tom, the book is good enough? Well, that was a problem. I never got that reinforcement. So of course, now I'm gonna constantly rake over every last sentence. Um, I hope I've answered your question. I, I, think I've, I think I've nudged Tom into a wellbeing crisis. So don't, don't, don't take that advice. Rachel, I'm gonna give one last question to you. So we've heard that the rates have risen for younger people. So does that surprise you? that younger people today are grappling with perfectionism more than people who are, who are older than them? No, it, it really doesn't. And in under, you know, why does that not surprise me? Well, it's not only because young people are living with social media, they're on multiple platforms, they're engaging with uh, certainly lots of different kind of ideals about who they should be, who they should want to be, aspire to be, and so forth, that they're seeing reflected in the media culture. And as Tom says, you know, we, we are, very often the, the content creators, if not necessarily really the curators. But that's not the only reason it doesn't surprise me. If you look at the wider context in which young people are negotiating their lives, uh, those who go to university paying huge fees and very often coming out with enormous amounts of debt, people who would aspire to home ownership, not being able to do that, being stuck in conditions of, of having to rent and essentially pay off somebody else's mortgage very often. Uh, struggling to get jobs, university education not necessarily delivering what is promised or what was once seemed a kind of a guarantee, a certainty that a degree would give you entry to a certain profession or at least to a certain kind of level of material comfort. Young people are living without the kind of material comfort that they have long been promised. And so in that context, the idea that if I just try harder, if I am just beyond exceptional, especially when I'm a minoritized subject or I'm in some way marginalized, maybe I can break out. You know, that's something that is being inculcated. Social media, there are huge problems with social media, but that is only one part of the picture. A bigger part of the picture, or just as important part of the picture, are the wider economic conditions that young people are navigating. And those, in my view, are political choices. Fantastic. So with that, we will take to the audience. And Nikita, do you have any questions online? So let's take one online first and then go to the, get, go to the room. Go ahead. So there are many questions around uh, 
people asking personal level interventions that you would suggest to combat perfectionism, especially around the guilt and the exhaustion that comes from perfectionism. Mm. Okay. Seems like a perfect fit. Yeah, well, I gave one, one um, suggestion, which is about having some way of measuring what your goal is, because if you don't have a way of measuring it, you will never complete it. You can't complete running if you just keep running forever. So set yourself some kind of measurable goal. I think being honest, you know, as I said to you, I was like, oh my gosh, I feel so nervous to be this honest. But actually when you are, other people are nodding their heads. So thank you, those people, <laughs> because you realize, oh, I'm not the only one. I'm not this flawed, you know, it's not this defect, which I can't escape. So if you speak to somebody else about it and they can assure you that and say, actually, yeah, this is crossing the line of unhealthy and it's not necessarily gonna bring you the outcome that you want. And then lastly, I think zooming out and thinking about, you know, the bigger picture and looking at your entire life, look at the things that you value, look at the family, the friends, the people that love you, look around and question, is this, at what cost am I willing to strive for this? Because if in that moment you decide, actually, I'll do whatever it takes, everything else can be sacrificed, maybe that's your choice to make. But if you know you're going to sacrifice and relationships, your own health, if these things are all going to be detrimental for the pursuit of this one goal, just make sure that you it's worth it and that you're absolutely willing to do that. And I think nine times out of 10, we probably look at that and go, it is not worth my physical health, my mental health, my relationships, and that might help. Your response there, Adrian, suggests that there's perfectionism in one domain. So almost that people have a number of domains in their life and they let all of the other domains drop in order to be a perfectionist for one particular goal. Is that what you commonly see? Or do you see people trying to be perfectionist, you know, being, being the perfect mother or father, being the perfect employee, being the perfect person who goes out and does exercise every morning? I think it can definitely be all those things. Of course, we know those people. Sometimes I am that person. Um, and we do, if you're striving in one area of your life, you might be that person that, yeah, you want to strive to do well in everything. You're very conscientious. So I think it can be that way, but I think often it's a spotlight and people will, Tom, you can probably answer this better than me, but I think sometimes people will spotlight on one specific thing. It almost defines them. And if, for example, the perfect mother or the perfect, and they're like, I have to get everything right in this role because this defines me. And if I, if I don't, then what is my identity? What's my persona if I'm not this, this perfect person? Would you agree, Tom? Yeah, I think the research is quite clear that you can have certain areas of life where you can be more perfectionistic than others, but perfectionistic people tend to carry that kind of intense drive across all areas of life. But that's not to say that there's more intolerance of imperfection in some areas that are personally important, particularly those areas which we hold in our mind's eye of the kind of perfect person that we, we expect the world to see. So I, I might, for instance, want my students to see me as a sort of perfect erudite, know everything professor, right? And that's, so if I make a mistake in that domain, then that's gonna have a massive impact on my sense of self-esteem relative to if I go ahead and play five-a-side football where I'm, you know, 35 years old, my knees aren't what they used to be, and I can kind of let that go a little bit. Um, so it's definitely the case that perfectionists do have perfection across all areas, but as Adrian said, you can, there are areas of life where we can be a lot more intense than others. Well, you're in trouble now because ChatGPT has outpaced Einstein, I believe, on um, IQ and the knowledge that it's holding. So your students can just check every uh, single thing that you say. Exactly. <laughs> in real time as well. In real time. In real time. <laughs> so let's go to the room. So I, I'm, if I, I'll, I'll take a question. I'm going to take two or three together. But if you could say the question also whether or not you yourself are perfectionist. So the related. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm Alifaz and Talib. Okay. My question is that if you're not a perfectionist, then how do you stand out? 
because all the role models which we have are not good enough people, they're all perfect, whether they are from your pop cultures, from your comic books, from your stories. So good enough doesn't really stand out. Yeah. So how do, you, how do we deal with that? It's a great question. And we have a hand here, yes, perfect. Hi, so as a young person and student and about to be a graduate, um, and someone with perfectionistic tendencies, I'm curious about something that you guys have kind of danced around a little bit, that fear of mediocrity, and how do you tackle that? If you could elaborate a little bit more on that fear and why that could lead to being a perfectionist. Thank you. Um, I have flashes of perfectionism, but very happy with mediocrity. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but, I, but my question is, actually, I work in a safety-critical industry, uh, and actually perfection is demanded because if it goes wrong, people die. Um, and therefore, what, what does healthy perfectionism look like in that, in that regard? So we have three fantastic questions and three panellists. So Tom, I'll come to you first with the question of how do you stand out if there is no perfectionism? Um, okay. Well, the first thing to say is because what we're told is wrong. This idea that in order to stand up or stand out, you need to be perfect, in, uh, that somehow perfectionism is a secret to success, and if you're not perfect, you're not going to get on in this hyper-competitive world, it's just false. When we look at the data, and we aggregate all the studies that have ever looked at the relationship between perfectionism, tendencies, and performance, find something really interesting. No relationship. No relationship between perfection and performance, even though perfectionists push themselves, as Adrian said earlier, to the max and then some. Now this is really interesting, and we think there's two reasons for this. Burnout, clearly, they put work too hard, they work hard, but they work too hard. But also something really interesting that perfectionists do too, that, that kind of get in the way of their performance. And that's that they're intently um, hypersensitive to failure. So when we put people in the lab, and we ask them to do a goal, okay, you've got to cover a certain amount of distance in a certain amount of time. We use sports, sports are really good microcosm of, of uh, competitive reality. Uh, and we say, go, go ahead and, and, and try to beat that goal. Um, and we tell everyone at the end of that, no matter how they did, they failed. Right? And then we do something naughty, we say, do it again. And what happens is something magical. Because the people who are not very perfectionistic, or not especially perfectionistic, on the second try, after the first failed trial, do a little bit harder. They work a little bit more. There's no kind of leveling off of their effort. They, they, they think, okay, well, I just need to do better this time and I'll go again. But the perfectionists do something really interesting. They don't do that at all. Their effort drops off a cliff. They stop trying because you can't fail at something that you didn't attempt. And this is the second reason why perfection has this curious relationship with performance and why what we're told about being perfect is a secret to success is completely wrong. Because when we encounter challenge, and setbacks and failures, and the going gets tough, the perfectionists get going. They procrastinate, they withdraw, they avoid, they withhold their effort because the anticipated guilt, shame, embarrassment of almost certain defeat in a task is so intense, they don't wanna feel those emotions, so they'll take themselves away. And that creates all sorts of problems for performance, um, and I'm sure you can imagine. So the, re the answer to that question is simply that what we're told is wrong. And, better, and a much healthier and better way to strive is to acknowledge that perfection is an inherently impossible goal, that we're, gonna we're not going to succeed every time. Failure is regression to the mean. It's going to happen again and again and again and again and again. And the more we can sit comfortably with that reality, the more we can let that in, the anxiety in, 
sit comfortably next to it as a kind of almost beautiful reminder of what it means to be a fallible human, an imperfect human being. Um, that's the most important thing. And the people I think who are the most successful and the happiest are able to fuse those two things together. They're able to, act, they're able to work hard, but they're also able to acknowledge that they're imperfect and that they will encounter setbacks and that's okay. I think the point that you make about failure is really important that when people anticipate how they'll feel when they fail, is actually much worse than failing itself because obviously we're quite resilient, resilient as human beings in, in, in the face of failure. So it's a great answer. So um, the fear of mediocrity, Adrian, can you take this one? I can take this question. This is the perfect question for me. And I promised at the start when I said I felt nervous, it's because I'm going to be honest. So I have always felt a feeling, I've said it many times, that you know mediocrity is overrated and actually who wants to just be mediocre anyway? You know, and to the points that you made earlier on around this, you know, the there's only one space or there's less spaces available. So therefore, if I'm going to get one, I've got to work harder and I've got to be the best and I've got to make sure that actually I don't want average. I don't want, like, you know, I talk about optimizing and better and not, not to be better than others, but just better than before or yesterday. Or, and I think that, that feeling, I know what you mean around mediocrity and, as, and we've been told that mediocrity as well is average. The word average is not a word that we use to compliment things often. It's, it's, it's not a good thing. So I have felt that for a very, very long time. Now, in the spirit of honesty, I feel like that has changed for me for two reasons. One, I feel like the antidote to this feeling about mediocrity is gratitude. I think when you flip it to the other side and you take away something, so you think about the things we all take for granted, the things we want to do every day, when you, when you can't do one of those things, you would give anything to be mediocre again, to have average again, to be able to do it when it's taken away from you. So gratitude is a real antidote to that. And secondly, you mentioned then, Tom, you said success and happiness. Now, I think we've been told a lie that success means happiness, when actually often it is the exact opposite of that. So, and I don't want to embarrass my husband too much, but I did say I was going to be honest. When I met this man, falling in love with this wonderful man, it was the happiest I've been in my life ever, in my entire life. And... I've achieved less success um, since being in this wonderful relationship because I'm so much more happy. And I think before, this idea is that success will make you happier. Success means happiness. And actually, when you experience happiness, you realise you don't care so much about success. That's been my experience. Do we need to redefine? Because when you say to me that you're in this happy relationship, with it's welcome to the LFA, by the way. I'm very sorry. For me, that, for me, that is success. If we think about a particular particular domain in life, and, and maybe maybe you have perfectionism in, in, in that domain. It is success, I suppose, in that sense. But I think I mean more in the kind of, yeah, I guess the way the world measures our success, whether it's, you know, the salary that we have, whether it's the job title, whether it's the, you know, you have a nice home, get a bigger home. You have a nice car, get a bigger car. You have, you've written one book, you know, was it a bestseller? Like, that's what I mean by success. I think the world's view of success, if you wake up every single day and you love your life, if you love your garden, if you love your morning coffee, if you love your handsome husband, if you love it, then you don't need more. <laughs> that's when you go, oh, yeah, I haven't achieved so much but I'm so happy I don't care so the last question so you need to beat that answer now so there's a lot of a lot of pressure on to the, to the other side. perfect Sorry. so the last question was about um, perfectionism in some jobs I think you mentioned a surgeon a doctor where trains where we where we definitely need where we definitely really want people to actually get things right where precision really matters Absolutely. do we need perfectionists there 
I don't know about perfectionists in the sense that perfectionism might be a kind of set of character traits perhaps that we inhabit in certain aspects of our lives, but that won't necessarily define us in a, a totalizing way. I don't know what, what Tom's views on, on, on that exactly, but certainly we know what we need in, in those areas of work that demand precision, people who are, are holding themselves to a very high standard. Of course we do, but we also need to look at the conditions in which they're working. What are the conditions that enable those people to show up to their jobs well-rested, comfortable, and with a certain sense of uh, support and security from their colleagues, the capacity of their department, um, whatever it might be, to, to, for them to exercise that, um, that level of skill, for them to implement it, for them to realize that precision that is necessary to, to do the job well and to do the job safely and for the safety of others. So I think, again, thinking about what are the conditions under which those jobs are being performed, and I know you're not speaking about the medical profession, um, but certainly train, trains, you know, this is not a sector that is necessarily doing well in terms of how, how workers are treated in this sector. Safety measures obviously being cut um, in, in significant ways, but also, of course, we could look at medicine, and I mentioned the NHS. These are people to whom we trust our lives, to whom we trust our children's lives, and we look at the conditions under which they're working, I think it's, I think it's shocking, and I think that's what we, we really need to look at. So again, not trying to direct to necessarily address the problem head on through individual solutions, but go the long way around, and I'm afraid it is the long way around. And in that regard, if I could just say, the question about standing out, I think, is a, a, a very apt one in many ways, but standing out to whom? Because leaders don't make movements, people do. Well done. <laughs> when, when you were talking, Rachel, I, so, so I do some work on decision making, and I study people who make decisions under kind of very high pressure. So there's kind of three groups, the black taxi drivers, which I like very much, uh, the fire brigade and high frequency traders mm. who really need to be making these kind of snap judgments. And I think it would be terrible to have a perfectionist in any one of those jobs, because I wonder that they'd freeze. So I wonder if there's so much up in their own head in the moment that you actually need them to pull the trigger and where the gut feeling comes in. And we spoke about this when you did my yeah, podcast. Did, yeah. And when I asked you the question, you said there's no job. No. It's you, a, very, a very kind of sweeping <laughs> kind of sweeping statement. So do you want to kind of give your thinking on this? Really interesting because um, I get this question a lot, but you've kind of added another interesting spin on this. And, you know, the train industry is one, nuclear industry is another, you know, this idea that the impact of things going wrong are, cat are so catastrophic that they just can't go wrong. Now, not something not going wrong and, and having a, a safety, um, uh, um, a culture in, in which uh, the objective is for things not to go wrong. It's very different for things being perfect. I think that's the first thing to say. And the second thing is in, in these organizations, transparency, communication, and clear lines of, um, uh, of, com of, of command and communication is so, so important because when the, it's not, things aren't gonna go well all the time. And this is, goes back to what I was saying a minute ago about when things don't go quite so well. If your organization is full of perfectionistic people who are worried about what that exposes and worried about what people will think when those things happen, then the lines of communication start to break down and you will end up seeing problems later down the line. I think what's more important in these organizations is for people to be meticulous, for people to be diligent, for people to be conscientious about their work, 
understanding that what they're doing is vitally important, but also that when things start to go wrong or something slips up or there was a, a difficulty on a certain day, that we have the capacity within us to be completely open and transparent about that so that those things are addressed. And this is something that perfectionists find really tough to do. And, and so that's the reason why I said to Grace on a podcast that I'm not sure... Um, particularly in these kind of high, high intense, high stress professions that perfectionistic people would do the best job. Fantastic. So we're going to try, we have about six minutes left. So we're going to take two questions from the virt uh, virtual room and two from the, the room, and then we'll do a quick roundup at the very end. So maybe two of the best questions online. So one question is around how do members of marginalized groups that experience racism combat perfectionism when the very mindset is a protective factor that feeds the reality that being perfect, that being better than is required to be seen as being of value? Perfect. And the second question is that, do you think the rise in perfectionism could be associated with more women in full-time work and continued expectation for them to also manage the household, household work? Hi, hello. Um, I'm a political science uh, scientist sorry, and sociologist from the LSE. And I was thinking about the political implications of perfectionism and productivity that you mentioned that I find very detrimental, probably, in terms of leadership when we have leaders that can become authoritarian because they're perfectionists, because that's the third element you mentioned in your book, that you judge people because they're imperfect and they are not at the standards that you expect them to be. That on a, ma on a, on a macro level, but I also want an advice on a micro level, how do you manage a supervisor that becomes abusive at you following the same pattern? because he expects you to be perfect, because he thinks that he also should be perfect. And then you are also a perfectionist, by the way I think I am. So that's why I'm asking for the advice. <laughs> there are two questions, sorry. One macro and one micro level question. Thank you. And we have one last one, yes. Okay, hi, I'm Nella and I'm recovering perfectionist <laughs> and workaholic as well. So I think uh, I managed to cure myself, if that's even possible with a lot of therapy, of course. But um, I have a question because when I was workaholic and when I was validating myself only through external achievements, I was never happy and it was never good enough. So whatever, whichever goal I would achieve, it was never good enough. So when I learned how to get out of that pattern, um, I become happier and now I appreciate laying on the grass. It has the same level uh, value for me as graduating from LSE. So, um, I have, yeah. Or any other university, not just no, other university. university. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it just happened that I graduated this year. So my question is, um, if we maybe many, if, if uh, workaholism and perfectionism is treated like any other addiction, maybe that could help us, because currently it's just socially acceptable addiction and uh, embedded in the society that much that it's, you are praised for it even. Even in the workplace, you are, you are pushed to do more, to deliver more. But what if we treat it as addiction? Fantastic. So for this question at the end, I'm gonna to come to all of you for the answer on should it be treated as an addiction and also at least one hack to help perfectionists who are in the room. But before we get to that, I'm going to come to you, Adrian, because you spoke about being the only woman of colour in some rooms that you go into. Mm -hmm. And the question was from um, when we think about people who use it as a protective factor if they are marginalised. Mm -hmm. So 
I, I guess kind of a, a yes no answer and then a reaction to that question yeah sadly I feel like I don't have an answer for that question I feel like I wish that I did I wish I could say this is what needs to change and then it will be there's so much bias still there's so many structural things that need to change in order for marginalized people to not be marginalized people you know I just think there's so much that unfortunately I don't want it to be disheartening my answer and as I said I'm in the room so that and at first I'm like well I'm in the room you know I want more people to be in the room with me but I and I'll use my voice where possible use my platform use whatever I can to to highlight that fact that yeah I, I really wish I had a better answer to be honest but I think that often just understanding that that's where it comes from and not beating yourself up, like we said before, like why am I always trying harder to be better is because you might feel as though if you're not, yeah, if there's only one space, sadly, there often is, especially, you know, in some of the work that I do in within media and, and, and tech, there's so many things where they need to, unfortunately, adhere to that. We've got some people of colour, so one is enough or two. And sadly, yeah, I mean, that's what happens when I look around, you know, a table of 20, I'm the only one. So I wish I had a better answer, but I think there's a lot needs to change. And again, it's not the individual's problem to solve. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. I will give you rise of more women in the workforce leading to perfectionism. I, again, I don't, I don't know that it's, it's um, quite as simple as that, that, you know, women being in the workplace in and of itself leads to a rise of perfectionism. It's important to point out, of course, that some women have always worked. Some women have always worked. They've always worked outside the home. And indeed, all women have always worked inside the home as well. But so women entering the workforce in larger numbers, or certainly middle class women's entry to the workforce, I don't think is in itself to blame for a rise in perfectionism. But again, thinking about the multiple demands on those women's time. And again, the need to try and stand out, the perceived need to try and stand out in order to be considered good enough at one's job. And in that regard, you can't ignore the fact that we still have in the UK a huge problem with maternity discrimination, an absolutely enormous problem with several thousands and tens of thousands of cases coming annually and very little actually resolved. Um, so again, why would a woman who is also raising children feel the need to outperform at her job and be perfect in all respects, not only in terms of necessarily her performance, but also in how she um, engages with colleagues, how pleasing her disposition is and so forth. Um, you know, I think we, we need to think about that. And I don't know, the, on the issue of addiction, I, I personally would be against, uh, you know, labeling this a, an addiction. I think the DSM is, is full enough for now. I think we need to try and um, be critical of the creeping medicalization um, of, of society more generally, and again, thinking about how these things are socially conditioned, and even addiction itself, in the true sense of the term, is very often socially determined. There are very clear social pathways that lead to, uh, to addiction, in the true sense of the term, and one of the foremost among them is deprivation, emotional deprivation, material deprivation. So again, thinking about those issues and going the long way around. I'm Tom, authoritarian leadership. Very easy question to answer. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I think your question is really driving at this idea that, um, I mean, we've, we've all worked with another oriented perfectionist, I'm sure, and we'll all can testify that it's not the most comfortable thing to do, I'm sure. Um, I think the, the key thing really um, is to be open and honest with people that you think are demanding too much of you transparency is so important and give clear examples to those individuals as to what 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 it is that makes this expectation excessive 
Maybe it's the time frame. Maybe it's the amount or volume of work that you're asked to do. And the more specific you can be, the better. And the more transparent and open you can be, the better. Um, I'm not. That's not to say these things are easy to do. These people are easy to work with. They're certainly not. But I think, as as like as like anything, letting it letting it sort of fester and kind of putting your head down and kind of bowing to the excessive demands ultimately leads to disharmony in the team and it also leads to worse psychological outcomes for you too so i, I would always approach those individuals uh, i'd always approach them head on and kind of just con concur i think uh, perfectionism really in my book is really about perfection as a societal affliction um and if we patholo pathologize it again we run the risk of turning it into an individual affliction and i think we need to really be talking about this as a societal problem uh with societal solutions not to say we can't do things ourselves absolutely not but also that we need to address this as a, as a collective too um so i'll end it there Amazing. And, and can I get hacks from each of you for people who might be listening who want to curb perfectionism? So we, we, we all appreciate that it's a really, really hard thing to beat. But for people who are listening who would like to do something, Adrian, can I start with you? Sure. I would say start something new and pick something that you know that you're really rubbish at because you can't be perfect because you're rubbish at it. I'm not, I don't have very good hand-eye coordination. So if I go and play tennis, I'm, I'm going to be rubbish. Just maybe try that. Rachel. <laughs> Organize, get involved in your union, establish a union, work with others to create change. Tom. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Um, uh, challenge your perfectionism every day in little ways. This isn't, a, and, you know, this isn't something that necessarily you can fix with a life hack. But you can, you can certainly make a commitment to challenge that perfection. What's in your mind's eye as a perfect person? Who do you want to be? Well, who, what's the idealized image of yourself? And challenge that idealized image in, in important ways. I'll give you an example. I was really petrified of public speaking. So during my PhD, I put myself out there little by little and tried to break down that anxiety. It was tough and it wasn't easy. But the more you do it, the easier it becomes. And so challenging your perfectionism little by little, I think, is what I would say. Fantastic. And for me, I would like to thank you, the audience. I definitely haven't been the perfect host because we ran over, which I just realized now. So thank you very much. But I do want to use that as a life hack to sum up, that sometimes when you don't do things perfectly, people do forgive you. And nobody is scowling at me. So I'm going to take that <laughs> as your forgiveness. Um, I'm Grace Lord, and I've really enjoyed this evening. Tom has plugged my podcast. So please do look me up. I would love um, if you tune in. It will be launching in July. And he will be one of the guests, which I'm really excited to have. And now I will extend an invitation to both Adrian and Rachel, or Adrian and Rachel as well, so we can continue the conversation. Thank you to the online audience. If this is your first festival outing, we have lots more to happen in Thursday and Friday, so please do continue to come and support the LSE Festival. And all that's left for me to thank tonight is the audience, the online audience, Rachel, Adrian, and Tom. Thank you for a fantastic discussion. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.